Take your Bible and find Luke chapter 11. If you've got a bulletin on the way in, there is an outline in the bulletin. I want you to, when you find Luke 11, look at verse 27. First five words in our passage this morning are these. As he said these things. The he is Jesus. The things are the things that he was talking about in the verses before this passage. And what Luke is telling us right out of the gate here as we look at Luke 11, 27 to 36 is that what we're about to read is connected with what we talked about last week. Because the things that we're about to read coming out of Jesus' mouth came out of his mouth as he was saying these things. And so let me just remind you briefly what we talked about last week. Whether you were here or not here, you've slept. So let me remind you. Jesus cast a demon out of somebody. The demon had made this person mute. When the demon left, the person spoke. This was a sign that the king and his kingdom were present in Jesus Christ. And those who saw it had three responses. There was one group, the smallest group, who believed Jesus was the king. They believed he was who he'd been saying that he was. They acknowledged him as the Messiah, and they were following him. There was another group who did not think Jesus was who he said he was. They were infuriated with Jesus. They were antagonistic toward Jesus. And they looked at the exorcism and they said, Jesus, you did that by the power of Satan. So you got one group that say, we're with you. You've got another group that says, we're completely against you. And then you had another group right in the middle that said, would you please give us more proof so we can decide the truth about you? We know you just cast a demon out of somebody, and we know that that happened because the mute man is now speaking, but will you please do one more sign? All we need is just one more sign, and then we'll believe. After all that they had seen, they needed one more. And Jesus looks at that group of people, and he warns them. We talked about this last week. Jesus says to that group, he says, listen, there's only two groups of people, not three. There's those who are with me and those who are against me. And if you think you can be neutral, you're wrong. You cannot be neutral. You're for me or you're against me. He's warning these people that they must make a decision about who he is. Will they acknowledge him as the king who has ushered in this kingdom? Or will they turn their backs on him and blame the whole thing on the power of Satan? Jesus says you must make a decision you can't be neutral. So last week we saw Jesus. He's warning these people. And this week, Luke is telling us, as he said these things, connecting these stories, he's still warning people. Here's the big idea of our passage. Jesus was always upfront, clear, and direct about what it means to follow him and what it means to reject him. That's the one idea that holds all of these verses together that we're about to read. And there's an interesting collection of verses, a strange collection of verses, some of them very difficult to understand, but this is the umbrella over all of them. Jesus is always clear, always upfront, always direct about what it means to follow him and what it means to reject him. And so this warning that we saw last week is continuing in the verses that we're about to read. So take your Bible, look at Luke 11. Beginning in verse 27, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear 
the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be holy light as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. This is the word of God from Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word, and we do believe that it's true, and we believe that it's powerful. Father, there's some things in the verses we've read that are difficult to understand, and so we pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would open our minds. And Father, I think that when we see what Jesus is talking about, uh, it is not difficult to figure out how this applies to us. It's difficult to do it's difficult to live out, but Father, it's not difficult to understand what Jesus is calling us to. And so give us wisdom, give us hearts that are willing to follow you and to follow Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Let me tell you about a guy named Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew was a Brit. Uh, he was a philosopher. He died in about 2010. And uh, in the school of philosophy that he was part of, you could describe Anthony Flew as an evidentialist. That means that he looked for evidence to, to support or to bolster everything that he believed. He wanted proof. If you couldn't prove it to him empirically, he wasn't interested in signing on and accepting it and believing it. And not only was he an evidentialist, but he was also an atheist. And the reason, according to Flew, that he was an atheist is because he was an evidentialist. He basically said, prove it to me. Prove to me that there is a God. Look at this quote from Antony Flew. He said, the onus of proof is on the theists. Theists meaning those who believe in God. The onus of proof is on them. Atheism is prima facie the more reasonable position. Now, just as a little side note, we won't get into this too much this morning, but there's a brilliant Christian philosopher, and he has basically taken that argument and flipped it on top of its head. Alvin Plantinga. And Plantinga says, very simply, that's ridiculous. The default position for most human beings is the idea that there is a God. That seems like it ought to be the accepted position, and you should have to prove to us that there isn't with your evidence. That's a different story. All I want to, to do in telling you that is to say, when you read a, a quote like that, don't cower in fear as if some philosopher has just twisted you up in a knot that you're never going to get out of. It's ridiculous. It's word games. But that's flu. And flu says, the default position is atheism. Prove it to me. And he said that year after year after year. He was known as one of the most outspoken, critical atheists in the academy. 
until 2004. And in 2004, he dropped a bombshell on the academic world and he said, the evidence has led me to believe that there is a God. I've changed my mind. I've thought about it as reasonably as I can. I've looked at the facts. I've looked at the data. And what makes most sense to me based on the facts is that there is some kind of God. Now, before we get too excited, understand that he did not believe in the Christian God. He steadfastly said, I do not believe in the God of the Bible. I don't think that this is the truth about who God is. But looking at the evidence, he did come to the position where he said, I now believe that there is, in fact, a God. The evidence has convinced me. And people talked to him and they said, well, could there possibly be evidence that would convince you one step further? Not only that there is no God to there is a God, but that this is the true God, the one described in scriptures. And Flew's answer was basically what we see from these people looking at Jesus. I would just need proof. I'm looking for proof. What is the evidence? He would have fit in great in Jesus' day. Because these guys, listening to Jesus, talking to Jesus, watching the miracles that Jesus did, were wrestling with the proof that was right in front of them. And a few of them said, you know what? We believe that you are the Messiah. And a few of them here said, we believe that you are crazy and that you're doing things that you're doing through the power of Satan. And a big sort of gray, fuzzy middle group of people wanted to say, we just need a little bit more proof. And then we'll believe. Just a little bit more evidence. Put more cards on the table. Prove it to us. And Jesus is looking at those kind of people, and he's warning them. This is what it means to follow me. This is what it means to reject me. Don't have any illusion that you can be in this fuzzy middle. And so my guess is that all of us in this room fall into one of these categories. Either we like to think that we are followers of Jesus and we've accepted him, or we'd like to think that we think Jesus is a nut job and we don't believe anything he says. Probably not many of us here this morning like that. Or maybe there's some of you who think you're riding the fence in the middle waiting for more proof. And Jesus is saying, listen, you're either against me or you're with me. And he's warning you, and he's warning those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus. This is what it looks like to follow me. This is what it looks like to reject me. And so I want to show you five warnings straight from the mouth of Jesus this morning. The first warning is this. It's not enough to hear God's word. You must keep it too. Or you could say you must obey it also. Hearing it is good, but it's not enough. You must hear it and keep it. You must hear it. And obey it. Verse 20, uh, excuse me, verse 27 and 28. This lady walks on the scene and she says, basically, my paraphrase, how blessed is Mary to have you as her son? How great would it be to be Mary and to have you? She clearly believes Jesus is a big deal and, and she trusts in him. How great would it be to be Mary, your mother? She's saying what Mary said people would say. You can jot down in your Bible and look up later, Luke 1, 48. Mary talks to Gabriel. Gabriel lets her in on the plan about Jesus, and Mary prays a prayer. She sings a song, and one of the things that she says is, all generations will call me blessed. That's what just happened in the Gospel of Luke. How blessed is Mary to be your mother? Jesus doesn't disagree with her, but he does point her to something more important. And what he says to her is this, look, Mary is not 
primarily blessed because she got to be my mother. Mary is primarily blessed because she heard God's word and she obeyed it. When the word of God came to her through Gabriel, she said, I'm your servant. Do what you have said you're going to do. I'm in. Mary's not blessed because she gets a a card from Jesus on Mother's Day. Mary's blessed because she gets to listen to Jesus, trust in Jesus, and follow Jesus. Is she blessed to be his mom? Yeah. But the greater blessing, the one that Jesus is talking about, is the one that comes from hearing God's word and from following it. Listen, parents, grandparents, teachers, Sunday school teachers, when you understand that this is our goal, the next generation hearing God's word and keeping God's word, it changes the way you parent, it changes the way you grandparent, and it changes the way that you teach. If your goal is just to get somebody, your kid, someone in your class, whoever, if your, your goal is to get someone to pray a rote prayer of quote-unquote accepting Jesus into their heart, you're going to parent completely differently than if this is your goal. I want my kids or my grandkids or the people in my Sunday school class to hear God's word and keep it and obey it. And Jesus is saying, this is the goal. And you need to understand, it is not enough just to hear God's word if you leave this room and you act like nothing has changed in your life. You hear it and then you keep it. Here's a second warning from Jesus. Demanding a sign to validate your faith is evil and foolish. Demanding a sign to validate your faith is evil and foolish. Verse 29, this generation, Jesus says, is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. It's looking for a sign. I'm afraid there's a lot of Christians and unfortunately a lot of churches who have fallen for this. Fallen for this idea that We're going to follow Jesus, but if something miraculous would happen, then we would really be able to follow Jesus. We're going to believe what God says, but if he just somehow give us a spectacular experience of some kind, then we'd really be able to follow Jesus and trust in Jesus. I think most churches today are more concerned about the spectacular than the mundane. More concerned about seeing something that knocks your socks off than reading God's word in the Bible. And we've fallen for this lie that something miraculous is somehow more trustworthy than God's word. If you don't believe me, go to any so-called quote-unquote Christian bookstore and look at the bestseller shelf. Books about, I had this great experience and went to heaven. Books about, well, I had this dream and God told me this. Books about, well, I sat down to write a devotion and God told me down to write down these words. He spoke to me. He said this. He showed me this. Miracles, miracles, miracles. Sign, sign, sign. It's not just the Christian bookstores. It's the non-Christian bookstores. And do you know why they stock those books? Because we buy them. That's what's on the shelf. And we buy it. And we read it. And we say, Wow. How awesome is that? Did you hear what this person experienced? Did you hear about this miracle? Did you hear about this spectacular whatever? And we think that somehow that is more sure and more certain than the revealed word of God. And we read those books as if they have more credibility about what they're talking about than we do when we read God's word. Listen, we're getting closer to Luke 16. Just wait till we get to Luke 16. 
Jesus tells a story in Luke 16, and I'll just give you a preview. The story goes like this. Jesus talking. A man died. He was a bad man. He didn't love God. He loved things. He went to hell. In hell, he asked God to send someone back from the dead to tell his brothers to repent. He knew the kind of life his brothers were living. He knew they were headed straight for hell like he was. Please send someone back from the dead to grab them by the shirt collar and shake some sense into them. And you know what Jesus said or do you know what God said in the story? Absolutely not. No, I'm not going to do that. Do you know why? If they won't listen to the Bible, they won't listen to a miracle. Now that's wisdom straight from Jesus. The wisdom of our age is completely different. I need a miracle, then I'll believe the Bible. Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. If you're not going to believe the Bible is God's word, no miracle will ever be enough proof for you. You'll always be needing one more proof, one more evidence, one more sign, one more spectacular experience. Demanding a sign to validate your faith, according to Jesus, is evil and foolish. Number three. Your response to the resurrection of Christ will impact your eternity. How you respond to the resurrection of Jesus impacts eternity. Verse 29 and 30. When the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, this generation is an evil generation. That's an interesting way to grow a crowd of people. More people are following Jesus. Here they come. This movement finally has some momentum. And Jesus says, you're evil. You're evil. Because you seek for a sign. No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Sign of Jonah. Jonah was three days dead, as good as dead, in the ocean. And he came back. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be three days dead, stone cold dead, and on the third day, I'm coming back. If you want a sign, that's the one you're going to get. It's interesting that Jesus says no sign is going to be given to you. Because elsewhere in the Gospels, we read that the things Jesus did were signs. Healing people, casting out demons, uh, controlling nature. The, the Gospel of John describes all of these things as signs. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, you can argue about the demons, you can argue about the healings, you can argue about whether or not I fed that crowd of people, you can argue about whether or not I stilled the storm. Here's the sign that really matters. Is the tomb empty or is it not? If it's not empty, if I'm there, forget everything else I just said. If it is empty, you better listen. Because your eternity hangs in the balance. Will you or will you not acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Son of Man, come to seek and save the lost by dying on the cross for your sins, dead in the grave, three days later alive, risen, and ascended to heaven? Will you acknowledge that or will you not? Jesus says, this is the sign that matters. You want a sign, I'm going to give you just one that really matters. It's the sign of Jonah. Number four, warning number four. Spiritual opportunities result in increased accountability. Spiritual opportunities result in increased accountability. Verse 31 and 32, Jesus talks about the Queen of Sheba and he talks about Jonah again, the men of Nineveh who repented 
when Jonah came. This is what he's saying. He's saying, look, Queen of Sheba traveled halfway around the world to visit Solomon because she had heard of how great his wisdom was and his learning and his, his teaching. She came and she sought him out to listen and to learn. I am the very word of God in human flesh standing right in front of you preaching and teaching and performing miracles and you won't listen. How foolish is that? Someone greater than Solomon is standing right here and you won't pay attention. You have an incredible spiritual opportunity right in front of you. And he says, the queen will rise up and she will condemn you. You say, the queen's going to be involved in judgment? No, the point is that she listened to what God was saying to her. And these people are not. And then he says, someone greater than Jonah is here. Jonah went to Nineveh. Go back and read it this afternoon. All Jonah said when he walked into Nineveh is God's about to destroy this place. He told no one to repent. He said, God will destroy the city. And they repented. They listened. They took action. They responded. And here I am standing in front of you calling you to repent and believe the gospel. Nothing. Someone greater than Solomon is here. Someone greater than Jonah was here. And these people are going to rise up. The men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba. And on the day of judgment, you will be condemned. Because they listened to what God was saying to them. And you did not. There will be accountability. I thought a lot about this during the last week. And uh, I narrowed it down to a couple of examples to give you. And, and examples for you to think about. You realize that. For centuries, not years, decades, but for centuries, Christians did not have access to the Bible in their own language. Still places today where they don't have God's word, but we speak English, and so let's talk about English-speaking people in uh, Great Britain or, or elsewhere in Europe. They didn't have the Bible in their own language. They didn't have it in English. They couldn't read it. They didn't know what it said. If you wanted to learn it, you had to let the priest teach it to you. And then a couple of guys came along, one named John Wycliffe and one named William Tyndale. There's Wycliffe on the left. He came a couple hundred years before Tyndale. These guys gave their life, their life to translate God's word into English so that people could read it. One of them was condemned after he died for his work in translating the Bible. Okay, So he's already dead. They have a trial, condemn him, decide that they need to punish him, dig him up out of the grave, and burn him at the stake. The other one was not so lucky because they just burned him at the stake, alive. They gave their life to do it. You and I can go to the so-called Christian bookstores where there are all these goofy books on the bestseller list and you can walk right behind there and you can just find shelves and shelves of Bible. Pick your translation. ESV, NLT, NIV, NASB, King James, New King James. They're there. We just take it for granted. There's an incredible spiritual opportunity that very few people who have ever, not just now, but have ever lived on planet Earth have enjoyed. What are you doing with that spiritual opportunity? Are you walking straight to the bestseller list to read a book about a guy who says he went to heaven and came back? Or are you reading God's word? Here's another example. Our team that goes to Kenya has pastor friends that work with us. 
This is a picture of one of our friends, Pastor J.B., Jehoshaphat Benson and his family. And we work with J.B. when we go over and they help translate and they help preach and teach and lead singing and, and do work there in the community. And uh, J.B. is a seminary student. He travels several hours leaving his family behind, several hours. He goes for a couple of weeks at a time to go to a seminary in the big city. And he is dying for Bible study materials for himself and for the people that he pastors. He sent me a message this year. I'm not going to go with the Kenya team, but he sent me a message and he said, look, I'm in seminary right now. This is the class I'm taking. Will you please send some books over, some good books that I can study on this topic? So what do I do? I get on Amazon and I order eight and they're there two days later. Nothing. Easy. He's dying for something like that. For something, some sort of resource, some sort of material to challenge him, to help him grow, to help his people grow. That's an opportunity that we have and we take it for granted. One last example. Secret Church. A few weeks ago, some of you were there. We had a good group. And uh, we studied cultural issues from a biblical perspective. But we also prayed for people in Vietnam. Persecuted Christians. And we watched stories at Secret Church about these Christians who are beat up, arrested, harassed, uh, have their, their property taken, et cetera, et cetera, threatened because they want to go to church. They want to go meet with other believers. I doubt that you had that fear this morning as you drove down University or you came down Parkway or you came down Grandview or whatever. I wonder if the cops are waiting on us. I wonder if they're going to shut it down this morning. I wonder if I'm going to get beat up for coming and bringing my child to a parent-child dedication. That's an opportunity that we have that we take for granted. And Jesus is saying, when you are afforded spiritual opportunities, you will be held accountable for how you handle those opportunities. I'm standing right in front of you. And Jesus says, you ought to take a note from the people who listened to the queen, or the queen who listened to Solomon, and the people of Nineveh who listened to Jonah. You ought to listen. You ought to repent. But since you won't, you'll be held accountable. Last warning is this. Don't look for light inside yourself. Look to Jesus. Don't look for light inside yourself. Look to Jesus. And this is verse 33, 34, 35, 36. And I'm going to be honest with you. These are tricky verses. These are verses that you really got to read and think about. You got to read them in the context of Luke. You got to read them in the context of other scriptural verses. And I'm about to give you a lot. If you like to take notes, you can jot some of these down. But here's what you got to remember. Jesus is talking to people, a group of people, and there's a good number of skeptics in the crowd. And they're the ones he's really talking to. The disciples are with him. The Pharisees are over here. They say he's doing it by the power of Satan, whatever. He's talking to this people, group of people in the middle, and he's saying to them, you can't be neutral. And he's warning them. And here's what he's saying to these people. Don't look for light inside yourself. Look to me. Look at verse 33 and 34. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your body is full of light. When it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Jesus says, look, what's the point of a lamp to give light? You guys are claiming that you don't have enough light to make a decision, that you can't see clearly to decide about who I am. 
He's saying to them, how stupid would it be for God to send you a light and then cover it up? The light is right before you. Think about what the Bible says about light. 1 John 1, 5. God is light. Psalm 119, 105. His word, the Bible, is light. John 1, 9. Jesus is the light of the world. He's looking at these skeptics and he's saying, the problem is not the light, the problem is you. You think you can see clearly and that you just haven't been given enough proof or evidence. The light has shown. And the problem is not with the light, the problem is with you. The problem is 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Satan who blinds the eyes of unbelievers so that they do not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The problem is Romans 121. When we follow sin and it leads us not into more light but into darkness. The problem is us. And Jesus says, when your eyes are bad, when the problem is you, you're filled with darkness. It affects everything else that you do. The problem is you, not the light. Look at verse 35. Be careful lest the light in you be darkness. I think what he's saying here is don't deceive yourself. Don't think that you are following enlightenment and knowledge and wisdom and learning and you're finding spiritual answers when all the while it's dark in your heart. The quote-unquote light in you may turn out to be darkness in the end. This is Romans 1. You can read Romans 1 this afternoon. Paul says, the truth is plain to us. What do we do? We suppress it. He says, we claim to be wise. We think we have light. He says, we're really fools. Paul says, we take the truth of God, the light, and we exchange it, we trade it for a lie. Romans 1, he says, we think we're walking in light, but we're really walking in darkness. Beware of spiritual self-deception. Verse 36, he says, if your whole body is full of light, have no part in the dark. Having no part in the dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. I think what he's saying here is, when God's light invades you, it will change everything about you. And if you think you have come to the light, you've accepted the gospel, and nothing has changed in your life, you're deceived. The light in you is really darkness. Because when you come to the light, and the light invades your life, everything about you is altered. Everything is different. Ephesians 5.8, you were in the darkness, now you are in the light in the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5.5, 5, you are children of light. You're no longer children of darkness. 1 Peter 2.9, God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 John 5.7, this is a good one. God is light and if you walk in the darkness, it's proof that you don't know the light. Luke 11.36, if there is no light in you, it's because, if there is light in you, it's because God has given you light. Don't look for light inside yourself. Look to Jesus. You understand that's Luke 19.10 in a nutshell. Don't save yourself. Don't seek spiritual wisdom for yourself. Don't try to climb a spiritual ladder based on what you can do. Understand that the Son of Man came to seek you and to save you. He came to do that for you. There is no light in you. There is no light in me. The light comes from God. The light comes from his word. 
The light comes from the Son of Man, the light of the world, who came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is laying it out very clearly, and he's warning people. You're either with me or you're not. You're either in the light or you're in the darkness. Let me pray for you. Father, our prayer this morning is simply that you would give us eyes to see the light. Father, we know that any lack of faith, any misunderstanding, any rebellion in our life is our problem. It's not yours. We can't blame you for a lack of proof or a lack of evidence. Father, you have shown light into our lives. We've seen light from your word. We've seen it in Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. Father, we pray for hearts to receive it this morning. And we pray for those who maybe are here in this room and are, are in their minds undecided. And we pray that you would bring them from darkness to light. That they would be children of light and not walk in the darkness. Father, that your grace would flood their life and bring them into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Father, those of us who are followers of Jesus, we want to take these warnings seriously. We want to hear what Jesus is saying about what it really means to follow him and what it really means to reject him. Father, we love you. And as we come to the light, we are amazed by your beauty, by your glory, by your majesty. Father, we don't have any good thing to bring to you, but we do want to come to you and worship. And as we do that and as we sing, it's not us bringing a list of good things to you or a pile of good things to you, but it is us simply saying that you are good and that your grace is enough. And so we pray that you would receive our worship as we sing together and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.